I always think, you know, it's easy to get caught up when we're singing hallelujah, right? And I always think about the um, implications. Does anyone know what hallelujah means? Huh? Praise him? Yeah? Alleluia, right? Yah, Yah, as in Yahweh. Praise the Creator. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We sing that song. It's one of those songs, you know, sometimes Justin talked a few weeks ago about the repeat, repeat, repeat thing we do in worship. Yet that is one of those words that when you repeat it, it's going to be the anthem of heaven. Praise the Creator. Eternal anthem. Hallelujah. The silent H, you know. Sometimes we tie it, sometimes we don't. It means praise Yahweh. Hallelujah. Right? Praise His name. It's a good way to start, start the service this morning, start our time. You know, it's already begun. I think it begins, what, when we get up? When does worship start anyway? When does it end anyway? It seems that um, worship starts when God speaks in our heart, speaks into our lives, changes us in some way. And from that moment forward, you find yourself constantly caught up in this cycle of worship, this, this uh, ebbing and flowing of fervency for the Creator, the one who made you, who knitted you together in your mother's womb, the one who knows you intimately and who knows your struggles. It, it, it births in us this passion to proclaim something like, Hallelujah for eternity. This passion that we have for the God who created us is a gift that he's given us to give back. We talked about that last week a little bit. It's a gift that we've been given to give back to him for his glory, for his purposes. You're created for a purpose. Worship him. How do you do it? Figure that out. How do you most glorify God through your life? But that's your call as a creature, is to glorify Him. You know the plants of the field do it? They just grow. Sometimes we make it into something it shouldn't be. Make it more difficult than it ought to be. So we spent a few weeks talking about some of these things, these basic principles. I don't know, you know, new, new ways of thinking about Christianity. Uh, what it means for our lives, what it really means besides a label, besides a sticker, besides a, a, uh, uh, something to feel like you're okay now, you know, what does it really mean to be a follower of Christ in the world? Some of the implications like we talked, we've talked about aren't that obvious maybe, uh, how, how things change for us, you know. But I wanted to ask a question this morning as we start um, our time together, this interactive time of studying God's Word. What have you heard over the last three weeks. This is the last week because we're going to start family groups, which I've already talked about. So next week we're going to be on to like a new study and it's going to be nine weeks kind of consistently on the gospel-centered life. But what have you heard over the last three weeks here? Or maybe in your own study time when you weren't here. What have you learned from the Word? You remember we talked about Sabbath rest three weeks ago talked about setting aside a time to just recognize God for being God. That we don't have to go 24-7, seven days a week. That the purpose of a Sabbath is to acknowledge that we aren't God. That the world will go on without us. Think any more about that? Have you, have you 
done anything with that? Have you tried to kind of carve out a niche in your life for Sabbath? A time of resting in God, trusting in God. We talked about the need to uh, go to someone directly, face to face, right? One on one, if there's a problem. If someone has sinned against you, is what the word said. Jesus said it himself. If someone sinned against you, go to them directly. I believe you sinned against me. The three-step plan. Did you, do you guys think about that anymore? Or try to apply it in any way? Did you? I know it's hard, right? Because who's going to speak up? I mean, I, I know, I know. You know, last week when Justin said, what are you thankful for? I sat in the back and I was just like, mm, Corey, representing from the very back. Way to go. You know, I was there. I get it. But I hope, even if you can't share this morning, I hope that the truth that you're hearing, the truth that you're learning, and not because I said it, because God said it. Like, look at it yourselves. I hope that you're trying to apply that truth to your life. I hope that you're, trying, you're making some attempt you know, and I know you're here, and that's, that's indicative of, of, of um, effort. But, you know, what is it that we're really trying to live out here as Christians? What do our lives really look like as believers in Jesus Christ, the Son of God? We talked last week about growing up, you know. It's time to grow up a little bit, you know. We don't hear that a lot. We don't honor elderly. We don't honor age. When we kind of lament it. We're trying to stop it. If we can stop age and death, we'd be fine. Except we'd be miserable forever. <laughs> you know, I'm not sure what that would look like. So anything at all in the last three weeks? I'm not offended, by the way. It's not about me at all. I'm just wondering, are we applying the truth to our lives? I hope that you are. I really do. And not for my sake, but for yours. I hope that even if it means you think it's rubbish, you think it's garbage, you've tried. Go try it and see. The word of God does not return void, right? It reaps a harvest every time. We can trust him and trust him with what he's proclaiming in our lives. I mean, that, that, that the fundamental truth of what I have found in Jesus Christ is he is trustworthy. He's worthy of your trust. The fundamental truth I found as one who reads scripture is that the word can transform us. That this book is not like every other book on your shelf, even though it looks that way when it's covered with dust. You know what I mean? Even though it looks like the other books, it's got this gold stuff on it, but there's a lot of stuff that has gold edges these days. I mean, it's really different. Why? I'm compelled to believe it because the word has made a difference in my life. I hope it's made a difference for you. I hope you've really done it. I hope you've really maybe memorized some scripture. Maybe you've ingested it, you know. You, you've thought about it. You've contemplated it. You read it. You hear it. You sing songs that are based on it. I hope there are ways you're integrating the word into your life. It will change you forever. Absolutely transform you forever. See, this is what we're going to talk about this, third, this fourth week, I should say. We talk about these other four th three things, and the fourth thing is this infectiousness that is knowing Jesus Christ. 
And, and I'm going to share a little bit of my story as I go through here, a little bit of it. You know, someone reminded me, they said, I don't really know your story. That's kind of crazy to me. I feel like I'm always talking about it, you know. I get this opportunity every week to share, and I feel like, oh, I'm always feeling like I've said it again, more of it. But I want to share a little bit about it, but I'm going to share it from a, a view of Scripture. But I want to get some thoughts in our minds here as we start thinking about contagious, you know, things that are infectious, things that are, that are um, you just catch them right this little symbol here do you have this do you have you seen a symbol anywhere before anybody i know some of you have some of you guys are working doctors and nurses right we have that on a little red container on top of our refrigerator at our house if you ever come over there's this bright red container and it's got that symbol on it and it says biohazard <laughs> so we thought let's put that on top of the fridge <laughs> no i mean it's there you can see it it's a um it's what is it called, like a needle catch or something, you know, it's shots that we administer at home. That's usually not a good thing to see on a bag that you find in your garbage, is it? <laughs> you know what I mean? This is a symbol you don't want to, you don't want to see that red plastic bag laying on the side of the road with that symbol on it. You don't want to see that. That should be somewhere else, not here. Why? It's dangerous. It's infectious. It's a threat to us. Well, Another little quiz. I won't screw this one up. Who knows what that is? Oh, you got, yeah. <laughs> like, isn't that funny? I remember when they first were talking about swine flu. And, and I kept thinking, swine flu? What a dumb name. Swine flu, you know, and you want to do all like the whole sophomoric, you know. Uh, yeah, that thing. And, and then they called it H1N1. And I'm like, okay, that's dumber than swine flu. <laughs> H1. But we learned it, didn't we? Oh. <gasps> Everyone was afraid of the swine flu. We didn't even know what it was. It was in other countries, and we were terrified of the swine flu. And it was scary, wasn't it? I mean, it was a real threat to our life. Let's close the borders. Let's stop air traffic. Swine flu is coming. It threatens everything that we have, everything we hold dear. Swine flu. Guess what? It's here. It's in Highland. It made it. It can't be stopped. It means really crazy, right? I just read this week in Highland News Leader, Highland Primary and Highland Elementary have had six cases. They won't say which grades, but man, there ain't many in there, is there? There are six grades in those two schools. That's my baby. <laughs> primary has swine flu scary stuff isn't it well we got a little alarmed about it and then it turns out it's kind of like the flu only it's got a pig's name and you know a call radio station or something you know h1n1 i mean it, but it was really scary and, and i'm not saying because there are people people just recently i think yesterday were had died of it but boy it was scary swine flu right I mean, it stands as a threat to everything that we hold dear. We want to just inoculate at all costs, cordon ourselves off, save ourselves from the infection that's spreading. I'll tell you another thing that I find that's infectious. It's kind of the same thing to get us thinking about these things. One is this kind of threat, this danger. The other is this. <laughs> no, that, that's a threat. <laughs> The term is Macvangelist. Have you heard of a Macvangelist yet? 
Have you met a McVangelist yet? A McVangelist is anyone who has bought an iPhone. <laughs> I've had some good friends who I thought I knew well until they got an iPhone. And they get that. You just ask them. If you see somebody on an iPhone, this is not an iPhone, by the way. People ask me, like, oh, is that an iPhone? I'm like, no, it's, it's just an AT&T. Til- oh, never mind. <laughs> Isn't that funny? If you ask somebody, hey, is that an iPhone? Yeah. You have no idea. A great friend of mine, actually, when he got his iPhone, was so excited. You know how they send emails from the iPhone? And it says, sent from my iPhone. He changed it to say, sent from my iPhone, and it's so cool. <laughs> Boy, that really irritated me. Stop with your evangelism, brother. Keep it to yourself. It was so cool. You know what's funny is, I mean, just think about this. If you talk to somebody who has an iPhone, they will show you it for, for like an hour and a half. Look at what it can do. You can shake it and the dice move around and you can push this button and you can see the, and look at the horizon. I mean, it's an amazing piece of technology. But you know what the term is? Macvangelist. It's someone who, who has found something they're so excited about that they can't be stopped from telling you. You can't. You're like, dude, I know you got an iPhone. Back up, back up. They're like, you got to get one. It's so cool. Come here. You got to get one. It's so cool. You know what? It's just a subculture, and it's just a bigger distribution of actually people who own Mac laptops. That's why they're, you know, if you meet a, someone who has a Mac laptop, I know some of you are here. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> They'll tell you the same thing. It just works. <laughs> it doesn't crash. You know, I don't get viruses. I mean, all this kind of stuff. But they're Mac evangelists. They're like, they're like check it out. Look how cool it is. You know, here's a side note. I'm a technology guy, what I like to do is open up like a Linux or Unix prompt on a Mac. Because then they break out hives. Like, turn it off! It's not a Mac. That's not in my Mac. Yeah, it is. It's Unix. I'm sorry. It's in there. A little technology stuff there for you. But it's true, though. They're, they're, they're so passionate about it. They're, they're so excited about it that they can't wait to tell you. They can't wait. We all do this at some point. We all, we all do this to some degree. Become an evangelist for a technology, an evangelist for a team, an evangelist for, for some event, something that's happened in our lives. We say, man, you got to check it out. It's so cool. You have no idea what's going on with this. You're going to miss it. You're going to miss it. Check it out. This is what I found. There's actually something that's been studied by business professionals, and it's called evangelism marketing, Right? And it's tied to this idea of a Mac evangelist. A Google search turned this up for me, right? Google's great. It's the coolest thing ever. Have you seen Google yet? Everybody's seen Google. It's ubiquitous, right? It's amazing. So I Googled Mac evangelist, and I found evangelism marketing from Wikipedia. This is what it says. Listen to the quote. Evangelism marketing is an advanced form of word-of-mouth marketing in which companies develop customers who believe so strongly in a particular product or service that they freely try to convince others to buy and to use it. They just do it because they want to, right? It goes on to say, the customers become voluntary advocates, actively spreading the word on behalf of the company. If you're in the business world and you can turn a group of people into evangelists for your product, you've done something spectacular for your bottom line. 
I mean, there is no end in sight to the growth you can achieve. It goes on to say this, evangelism marketing is sometimes confused with affiliate marketing. However, affiliate programs provide incentives in the form of money or products, but evangelist customers spread the recommendations and recruit new customers out of pure belief, not for the receipt of goods or money. Rather, the goal of the customer evangelist is simply to provide the same benefit to somebody else. That's all they want. You gotta try it. It's so cool. As they act independently, it says, evangelist customers often become key influencers. The fact that evangelists are not paid nor associated with the company at hand makes their beliefs perceived by others as credible and trustworthy. Isn't that amazing? There's an entire business model based off of this passion for a product. By the way, this entry was from Evangelism Marketing Wikipedia. Have you seen Wikipedia yet? It's so cool. It's like all the knowledge of the world. Remember those Encyclopedia Britannicas that used to take up all the shelves and collect dust? They're gone. Everything's in Wikipedia now. You know, teachers don't accept that. They're, they're changing their ways now. They don't accept that as uh, references. References, right? I want to share one, uh, one more story, and we're going to get into the Word. Here it is. I was an atheist for a long time didn't believe God existed, and I would argue with any one of you who said he did. I would argue to the end of the earth that God existed. No way. Completely delusional, right? And then I opened this book, and I started to read it, and I challenged the eternal God. I've told you this before. And as I read the word of God, it took him six chapters of the holy book, six little chapters of one of 66 books in his revealed word to get me on my knees confessing Christ as my Savior. Nobody was there. It wasn't a show for anybody. The word of God changed my life. It's ridiculous. And a sinner was saved. Well, I'll tell you one of the crazy implications for this. I was on Yahoo Chat back before, I mean, this stuff moves so quickly, but it was kind of new technology then. My friend in California, who was a super geek out with uh, Berkeley, we were chatting back and forth. And he said, hey, dude, what's up? I said, not much. He said, anything new? And I said, yeah, I believe Jesus is the Christ and he died to save my, me from my sins. And he wrote back, LOL. And I go, no, I'm serious. And my phone rang. And I answered, and I said, hey, man, what's up? And he goes, are you kidding? And I go, no, dude, I read the word of God, and it's true. God exists, and he loves me, and he died for me, and I believe it. And he goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. Whoa, 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 Easy. Are you serious? I said, yeah. It's so cool, dude. All these years, I've wanted peace with God, and here it is. God offered it. Praise his name. And in the middle of this conversation, I kid you not, this is the way it went down. He said, we can't be friends anymore. I said, what do you mean we can't be friends anymore? We've been friends for like, since grade school, we've been friends. He said, we can't be friends anymore because you're going to infect me with this. You're going you're to try to convert me. You're going to try to change my life. You're going to try to tell me I have to be a Christian too. I know. I've seen you Christians before. I know how you are. And I said, dude, I don't understand. I just wanted to share it with you. I'm not trying to convert you. Seriously, 
you can live your life, I'll live mine. But man, I just got to tell you, it's so cool. Don't tell me that anymore. Don't share it with me. I called him out. I said, dude, I love you. And it's not going to change. I'm going to keep loving you. And I think it's a a crock that you're not going to love me now. So he says, well, that's fine. Just we have to agree that you're not going to share this with me anymore. Okay. Let's talk about some things. And then we spent two and a half hours. I spent two and a half hours listening to him tell me why God doesn't exist. I just kept turning to God in the conversation and said, this is you. You did this to me. Make me strong for this. Don't pray for me. You can't stop me. You can't stop me from praying for you. You need peace with God. The conversation went on. And that's where it was. You see, my friend had rightly determined something that I had not yet acknowledged. And that was that with the gospel of Jesus Christ, I became a dangerous person. Today I want us to hear a story from Scripture about the most dangerous people, the most dangerous people that can be found. It's going to be from the uh, ninth chapter of the book of John. If you brought your Bibles, and I pray that you did, you can find that pretty easily. If you haven't, you can use one of ours, and it becomes yours. Page 745 in the Word of God. We're going to read two, uh, two verses here, or three verses, 24 through 27. This is what the Word of God says. It says, A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God, they said. We know this man is a sinner. The man replied, Whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. But one thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered, I have told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become disciples too? Let's pray. Father, today we come to you expectant, waiting for your word, waiting for you to proclaim truth in our lives, waiting for you to touch us in such a way, Lord, that we become contagious, infectious. Today, Father, I pray that as you work through your word and through your will and through your spirit here, that you would give us hearts that are open to the truth, minds that will receive it, ears that will hear it, eyes that perceive it, a tongue to proclaim it. May you be glorified today. Have your way. Do your will. We love you and confess your goodness today. In Jesus' name, amen. This little verse right here in the book of John is a story about a man born blind. A man born blind. And what these folks, these Jews who were questioning him understood is that he was a threat. He asked a weird question, and I think it's kind of funny if we look at it in verse 26 or 27. He says, I have already told you and you didn't listen. Do you want me to tell you again that you'll become a disciple too? I think that's kind of crazy, isn't it? I mean, have you ever threatened someone with, with, like, salvation? Have you ever said, if I tell you this story again, you're going to believe it? If you keep asking me to repeat the story of how God changed my life, 
you're going to become a believer. I, you can't help but become a believer. Why? It's contagious. And that's why we know that when Jesus heals you, you become dangerous. You become dangerous. I want to back up. I want to look at this, this guy's story. It's, the whole thing is in the ninth chapter of the book of John. But I just want to start here in these first two lines. This is Jesus walking. It says this, As Jesus went along, he saw a man born blind from birth, right? He, his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus says this, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but it happened that the work of God might be displayed in his life. So here's Jesus. He's walking along the road. He sees a guy who's been born blind, right? Blind forever. Never seen anything before. And the disciples ask a question. Whose fault is that? Did he sin or his parents? Ah, you know, did you ever feel like that guy? Did you ever feel like the person that, man, you've you just been put upon? You, you didn't pick this. You didn't choose it. You know, you're in a situation where people would look at you and they would say, who made that mess? Him or his folks? I don't know how it would feel, but I think it's ironic or interesting that the disciples of Jesus are the ones that ask the question. Those who've been following him as he's taught them about his kingdom and about mercy and grace and love and healing and hope. And they look at this guy and they say, okay, now who screwed up there? Whose fault is that? The question from the disciples is asked of Jesus. And I want us to catch the answer this morning. Because it's all going to get into this guy, how he's such a threat. He's such a threat to everything that, um, that others stand for. Jesus says this in verse 3, Neither this man has sinned nor his parents causing this affliction, right? But this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Boy, that's an easy thing to tell somebody, isn't it? I know you've been born blind, but you were born blind so that God's work could be made manifest in your life. I know you're going through a really tough time right now, but you're going through a really tough time so that God's work could be manifest in your life. I know you feel all pent up, or I, I know that, that life's not been fair to you. I know that you're the underdog. I know that you're put upon, but you're put upon so that the work of God can be made manifest in your life, so he can be glorified through you. That's crazy. And I got to tell you, not many people who are struggling, who are hurting, who are lost, who are hopeless, want to hear that message. Not many people want to hear it. That God is going to be glorified through this. That's Jesus' answer. It happened that, this, that the work of God might be displayed in this person's life. He goes on to break it out, but, but it will stop right there and just kind of leave it. Because that's his answer. You find yourself in a tough spot so that the work of God can be made glorified in your life. Next thing here in, in the story, the story of the man born blind. Let's read it together. It's in verse um, 6 and 7. 
So after Jesus instructed some more, by the way, read the whole thing if you want to. It's amazing. But in verse 6 and 7 is what it says. Having said this, Jesus spit on the ground. He made some mud with saliva, and he smeared it in the guy's eyes. Now, now here's a good way to treat a blind guy on the side of the road. Do you know what I mean? You're walking along. Somebody says, who fault is that? God, Jesus says, it's so that God can be glorified. Like that. Are you kidding me? I would be like backing up if I was following Jesus. I'd be like, wait a minute. What are you doing? He can't see. Smeared in his eyes. Look at what the word says in verse 7. Go, Jesus tells him, and wash in the pool of Siloam. That word means sent, John tells us. So listen to this. The man goes and washes. I mean, he responds to this crazy act by some guy on the street with obedience. It's unbelievable. Because through the obedience, the man comes home. Look at what the word says. The man comes home seeing for the first time. I want you to put yourself in that guy's eyes. He's been on the side of the road his whole life. He's been passed over and looked down upon. He's had people that he can't even see say, whose fault is this that that guy can't see? His or his parents? Because somebody is screwed up when they made him. How can God be glorified through him? How can God be glorified through her? Can you imagine hearing it? And never knowing who are these people? I was born this way. What does God want from me anyway? And then some guy rubs mud and spit in your eye. I mean mud and spit. And he says, go and wash. And this guy has the tenacity to go and obey and do it. And can you imagine when he dips down and he rinses out his eyes? And for the first time, he can see. He can see for the first time in his life. You know what this is? This is what it's like to encounter God. It's exactly what it's like. For the first time in your life, you see things you'd never seen before. Your whole worldview has changed and your friends start to back up. Wait a minute. Who are you and what happened to my friend? You start to proclaim a great big story about a great big God who's manifest himself through your life. So he goes back. Let's read on in verse 8. He goes back to his neighborhoods. He comes back seeing. Can you imagine? I don't think we can get our heads around it, what this would be like. And as he walks back, he sees his neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging, and they begin to ask some questions about this guy. They say, isn't this the same one who used to sit and beg on the streets? And some said it was. Yeah, that's Joey from down the block. Know him anywhere. He's been there his whole life. Had no hope, no future. No direction, no purpose. And others said, nope. It just kind of looks like him. You know, it's a stunt double. <laughs> I don't know where Joey went, but this ain't Joey. Listen to what he says. He insisted himself, I'm the man. I'm that guy. I'm the one. Here is this idea that, that 
we become almost forced witnesses of the goodness of God. When he brings a healing into our life, when he releases us from a struggle or a pain, when he works in that quiet place that you think nobody knows about and God releases you there, he becomes the object of glory. He becomes the one that you testify about. And people will start to say things like, well, you know, you're just having a bad day. And you say, no, everything's changed. And you begin to have uh, heated conversations with others who would tell you who you are. And what you've experienced. He becomes a reluctant witness. I'm the man, he says. Well, then how did your eyes get open, they asked him. It says they demanded of him. And he replied, this guy they called Jesus made some mud and put it in my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. And so I went and washed. And then I can see. Isn't that a great story? You know what's crazy about this? This guy doesn't know Jesus from Adam. He still doesn't. Jesus could walk by on the street and he wouldn't be able to pick him out of a crowd. He couldn't pick him out of a lineup. Why? Because he's blind. He has been given the unmerited grace of God manifest in his life. This guy named Jesus made all the difference. This guy named Jesus touched me. This guy named Jesus healed me. Where is he? I have no idea. It's the first stages of an evangelist. Let's look at what the word says in verse 18. We're just going to jump right through here. The Jews did not believe what he had been blind from birth, right? And had received, had then received the sight until they sent for the man's parents, right? So this is like kind of humiliating. If you're a guy and you've been born blind and you can see and no one's believing you, what happened was his friends kind of sold him out and said, we're going to take you down to the local law enforcement. We're going to get this straightened out because you ain't the guy. And the Jewish leader said, he can't be the guy. Nobody can open the eyes of the blind. Nobody. This does not happen. And in that place, they called in his parents, right? And in verse 19, it says, is this your son? They asked the parents. Is this the one that you say was born blind? How is it that he can now see? And listen to the parents here. We know he's our son, the parents said. And we know he was born blind. But how he can see now? Who opened his eyes? I don't know. Why? He's even a threat to his folks. He's even a threat to his parents. This new revelation, this new insight, this, this scene that he's doing, I don't, I don't know how he did it. You know what they say? He's of age, ask him yourself. He's of age, ask him yourself. Is their response. Because they knew that even his seeing would affect them. Do you know what I'm saying? Something else I ran across this week was this. It says that you influence about a thousand people with how you choose to live your life. Every single one of you influence about a thousand people based on how you live your life. They did a study and they showed that, that concentric circles exist around you in your circle of friends. And they say that if you have about 10 friends in your life, 10 people that will be paying attention to you, and then, and then they go and they have 10 people, that's a thousand people that you influence in your life. Do you know what they said? If you smile, you influence other people to smile. And they influence other people to smile. 
if you're depressed, you influence them to be depressed. The fact is that this guy stood as a threat to everything because of the work of God in his life. So, now we're back where we started. Because they call this guy back in. After the parents say, hey, 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 ask him yourself. They call this guy back in. They say, a second time, give glory to God. That means tell the truth. Would you just be honest for a minute? Just tell us, just between us, seriously. This is my friend on the phone. I, I, I know life is easier for you now. And um, I know your wife's probably happier. And uh, it's just the two of us, dude. And we've been friends since grade school. And you know that I don't believe in God. And you didn't believe in God. So seriously, just between the two of us. Tell me the truth. Jesus Christ changed my life. <laughs> it's just the two of us here. He changed everything. I once was blind, but now I see. They say, give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. They're talking about Jesus. And he says, look, if Jesus is a sinner or not, I don't know. All I know is once I was blind, but now I see. You know, that's how simple it is to testify to the truth of what God is doing in your life. You don't have to make up fantabulous stories about it. Just speak the truth. You know, it was just one little thing, but man, it was cool. God did this thing. Changed my life forever. Boy, today I got up and I saw God glorified in the sunrise. So beautiful. Did you see that? These little things we begin to testify to. And that's all he does. So then they ask him again, hey, hey, tell us again how it happened. He says, do you want to become a disciple? Do you want to become a believer of Jesus? Do you want to follow him? Right? Do you want to become a disciple also? It's a simple confession that we have in our lives, and I pray that you have it. I pray that you experienced it. I, I pray that by the grace of God, he's revealed it to you in your life. I don't want you to make it up. If you've not had a living encounter, I'm not saying, and I'm not saying it's special, but I'm saying God is moving, and we should be paying attention to the movement, and we should have no problem telling those who are nearest to us, this is the coolest thing ever. You've got to see this thing. Whew. This guy, Jesus died for me and for you. He forgave me all of my sins. He gave me new life. New life. A simple confession stands as a threat to others in your life. It's just like the H1N1. I don't want it. This is going to change me. They're right. It will. But it's the coolest thing, the coolest thing we can proclaim. Do you remember what the purpose of, of, of what Jesus said? What was the purpose of the man's blindness? That the works of God might be made manifest in his life, right? That, what he says in verse 1. Let's look at it. Verse 3. That the work of God might be displayed in his life. Look what's happened. The work of God's been displayed in his life. If you, I want to say this to you, and this is the tougher part. If you, if you no longer have this passion for Jesus, if you no longer have this passion to share the good news that you found in God, and I'm not talking about something somebody told you, this is what you say, this is what you tell somebody. I'm saying a, a, an honest-to-God confession of what he's done in your life. If you don't know how to tell that story anymore, then you've forgotten. You've forgotten what Jesus has done. 
If you don't stand as a threat to those around you and the way that they live their lives, you've forgotten what God did in your life, how much he's changed you. So, here's what happens. After he confesses this to them, they get really upset with them and they kind of freak out and they start to proclaim their own righteousness and his unrighteousness and it comes full circle into an absolute and complete judgment of who he is. And look in verse 34, they say to him, when he started to call him out because he's saying, if Jesus did this, he's of God. That means Jesus is God. That means big stuff's happening here. And this guy says this to, the, to these uh, ruling Jews and they say this, you were steeped in sin at birth how dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Boy, it came right around. I mean, they tossed him out of the synagogue. You're no longer wanted here. You don't fit. You don't belong. He's a threat. And they know it. The contagious that he has, the contagiousness he has about God, the infectious faith he has, and the one that can heal the blind becomes such a threat that they can't have him around. They can't keep him there. They can't let him dwell among them because he will make a difference. He will change things and things can't change here. And so they toss him out. Look at how it wraps up here. This is where we're going to finish. 35, Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. So Jesus hears, that guy you healed got thrown out. And so Jesus went and found him where he was. And he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Now look at what it says here. The guy says, who is he? Tell me so I can believe. And Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he's the one speaking to you. And in verse 38, the man said, oh Lord, I believe. And worshiped him. In this time of judgment, this time of being cast out, when the truth hurts, Jesus seeks us out. And he comes in that time and he asks us a question. And he asks it still. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Has it been too long? Too much water under the bridge? Have you forgot what it's like to share something that's so amazing? It's the only thing worth getting excited about. Let's pray. Father, today we come here as folks who are eager for your kingdom work. Folks who long to be used for your glory, to remember the great good news that changed our lives. We confess that we are sinners, that the gospel isn't a past event in our lives, but it's a daily application that, Lord, every day you're saving us. Every day you're showing us the way forward. Today, Father, I confess the ways we've taken you for granted, the ways we've said, been there, done that. Jesus, have mercy on us for that. May we always remember the touches. May we always know your hand in our lives. May we always be obedient to the washing. May we always be willing to bring glory to you. Today, Father God, for the hearts that don't know you, I pray your spirit work richly there. That You do work. It's not our work. We don't claim it for ourselves, Father God. 
You work as you will amongst your people. And so today, Father God, we give you hearts and minds that are open to hear it. A willingness to see it, to acknowledge it, a longing to be healed. Father God, today, have your way with us. Do your will. And uh, I pray that we would go away with, like, joy in our hearts. A passion to share this good news that we've seen and we've heard and we've tasted and we've touched, we've received. May you be glorified. You are most worthy of praise. We thank you, Jesus, for the way you've loved us. Amen.